You know, it's it's interesting. Um, every single mode of transportation in this country has gone haywire on <laughs> right. his watch. Right. Trains, ports, ports, uh, planes, uh, balloons, balloons. balloons. Yeah. <laughs> like, <multiple laughs> times, I mean, how is there a you know is there a way to get around that hasn't gone haywire since he became Secretary of Transportation? Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Scott's back from New York and D.C. I'm back from D.C. last night as well. Kevin Grout is here, Jared Crawford, Sean with the week off. I just want to point out that we fired Corrine Jean-Pierre and rehired I'm Kevin back. Brad. He's oh, back. Congratulations. I heard what you guys were saying about me last week. So I made it <laughs> so, a point. Nothing was going to keep me out of this chair tonight. But in but instead, we've now fired Sean and hired Bernie Sanders, who we'll get to shortly. Bernie Sanders will be up <laughs> shortly with his new book. Same it's, amount of crotchety, it's, honestly. It's, what's the book again? It's okay to be crabby about capitalism or something like that. It's <laughs> yeah. the whole thing is it's a different way of saying, you know, be a socialist. Uh, let me ask you about your baby. What's going on with the baby? Ah, <laughs> uh, Teddy's doing great. Thanks for asking. I mean, he's smiling now, which makes getting up in the middle of the night a lot easier. Um, he's he's starting to coo. He's he's doing real well. Fantastic. Do you have three a job yet? Old. You know, he's still freeloading. <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking about it tonight. <laughs> we have no national divorce on Flyover Country this week, but we'll talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene coming up. But first, some unanimity in, uh, in Ukraine to a certain degree. You know, we heard... Uh, few weeks ago, Scott actually uh, uh, gave a remarkable address uh, in, in Louisville here celebrating leader Mitch McConnell's longest-serving uh, leader in U.S. Senate history. And uh, we had a chance to, to chat with the leader about his arduous train journey, you know, overnight from Poland into uh, Kiev, Ukraine. And and now, since then, of course, this past week, the, the president, it looks like he kind of replicated that same journey. Of course, it's much different when the president of the United States is making that kind of a journey and uh, not a lot of advanced warning, although the Russians apparently knew about that in advance. But that set's got uh, it, really kind of a – it's a big moment for the world, one-year anniversary of the invasion. It's kind of hard to believe in, in general, guys, that we've been talking about that for as long as we have. But overall, what's your what are your thoughts here on um, – President Biden in, in Ukraine, as well as the leader McConnell and his comments there in Munich. Well, I um, so many things have happened. Um, number one, um, the, the predictions that Russia would defeat Ukraine quickly obviously were wrong. Number two, um, you know, the American involvement in this uh, and the political divisions that it's created that actually I think sort of run through strains of both parties, has become extremely interesting, which we'll talk about a little bit. Number three, um, really, uh, I think the national debate we're having about the role of America in the world is, I, I mean, we a lot of domestic policy stuff going on, but to me, this is one of the most consequential debates that's going to define this presidential election. And uh, I'm sort of anxious to see where it goes. I mean, you've got Biden in Europe saying we're in it to win it for the long haul. You've got senior Republicans over there saying that. But then you've got presidential candidates at home uh, saying, no, uh, this is of no import to us. And um, some of those candidates have a really good chance of, A, being the Republican nominee and B, uh, being the next president. So it, it's, um, it's a really sort of fascinating kind of um, – 
debate that we're having. And and as a final point, the alignment of Biden along with other members of Congress versus people who are outside of Washington is um, it, it, it just doesn't adhere to our normal partisan lines. It was great to see the president there. And he took a visit that seems at this point free of his usual gaffes. Last time he went over to Poland, he told U.S. troops that they were headed to Ukraine, and that that was obviously not true. Uh, it was great to see him there showing strength. I know the Biden administration had to be pulled, sometimes kicking and screaming into defending Ukraine, but it's it, it's clear now the Americans are there to help, and they're going to be there till victory. Um, I mean, he even had a great opportunity to kind of clap back right at Vladimir Putin. So I think I think the sequence of events was Biden went to Kiev and then he went back to Poland after his visit. Then Putin got up to give a speech where he said something to the effect that Russia would never be defeated on the battlefield. And later that day, literally hours later, Biden is telling a rambunctious group of of Poles that Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Never. And that is a strong statement from a U.S. president that I think we all need to, to celebrate. Yeah, I often think some of the most powerful, you know, moments or scenes and sort of world history is, is when you see America as that sort of beacon on the hill for these countries that have suffered from dictatorships or wherever it might be. We, we think of Taiwan, of them waving American flags and certainly have seen some of that in Ukraine, too. And so to have a president who, look, we bash him all the time. We're probably, you know, give us five minutes. We'll start bashing <laughs> him again. Uh, but to have that moment where, again, America is that beacon on the hill where that flag on his lapel means something, I think those are really powerful moments. Uh, and as much as the left hates this country, we love this country. We love that flag. Uh, and so to see that flag waving, to see it you know, uh, there and standing for the right things against authoritarianism and dictatorships and against this sort of arbitrary violence is a really powerful scene regardless of who the president is. But at the same time, I, I do think it's not illegitimate for – the average American voter to say, look, I don't like the Russians. I'm glad that we're helping the seemingly good guy in this. But to say we're going to do something in an open-ended way, right? Uh, and the numbers look big. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's a pittance compared to the overall federal budget, but the numbers yep. look look big. I think one of the political problems people have with supporting the open-ended support idea is we literally just got out of Afghanistan, which seemed like an open-ended commitment, which which Biden precipitously pulled out of for political reasons. He, right. he didn't pull out of there for national security. Rate. He pulled out because he thought it was politically popular to do so. Now, he botched it. Now we're not—we don't have troops in theater. But at the point Biden pulled out of Afghanistan, American soldiers were not in harm's way. Right. They're not in harm's way now. Either, but now we're in the middle of another conflict, and so I, the incongruity of Biden here—I pull us out of this, I put us in that. You would have to forgive the average voter for saying, "Well, wait a minute, what's the? What do you really believe, and why do you believe it?" And so now, look, I'm—I believe we have to defeat the Russians. The fact that we're defeating them without a single American soldier being in harm's way, shedding a drop of blood, is is incredible to me. If you grew up during the Cold War and the end of that, and just, this is the enemy. They hate the American way of life. So we're, we are, we're doing something incredible here, and it will inure to our benefit. But, but the, the, the global politics of it for Biden and his disposition about our role in the world is, is a little confusing. And that's why I think it's most important to listen to some of 
Biden's political opponents and why why they're so supportive of this. Senator Mitch McConnell, who you know we're all big fans of on this podcast, was in Munich this week for the at their security conference, uh, international group of, of leaders getting together, and he gave what I think was a truly remarkable speech laying out not only why the United States needed to be involved, but why everybody around the world needed to be involved in this. I don't know if we have sound or if you want me to read the quote. So, so I think the sound is him previewing it before he yes. left. Yeah, he was in the United States uh, saying what, what he was going there to tell the Europeans. To allies like we're listening to the Ukrainians saying they don't have enough ammo. And even our Defense Department is saying we might have to figure out a way to get more funding so that we have enough ammo for ourselves and to give to allies like Ukraine. What is Biden's responsibility in trying to make sure that people in America whose support for Ukraine is softening will want to continue to try to help them? Well, I'm going to try to help explain to the American people that defeating the Russians in Ukraine is the single most important event going on in the world right now. It will save us an enormous amount of money down the road if the Ukrainians can succeed. They're not asking for any of our personnel. They're asking us for financial help. The Europeans are stepping up. They've done an awful lot that seems not to be recognized. For example, handling enormous numbers of refugees. In terms of the cost of it, Dana, it's about 0.02% of our gross domestic product. We are also monitoring very carefully the money that's being spent there should be a bipartisan support for this. My biggest criticism of the president is he seems not to have done enough soon enough. Had he moved more rapidly, we might have been able to help the Ukrainians have even more success than they've already had. But it seems like these weapon systems tend to get there a little too late uh, on, on every occasion. Exactly. I'm sorry, I'm sorry public opinion is sliding, but I want to reassure the American people this is enormously important. We need to stay together on a bipartisan basis in our country and defend these people who are bravely fighting uh, for freedom and for democracy in Ukraine. McConnell so on Fox News. We're listening to the Ukrainian. So when he went over to Munich, he put a little bit of a finer point on it and why this is not just in our hopes, dreams, some vague interest. He said Republican leaders are committed to a strong transatlantic alliance. We're committed to helping Ukraine, not because of vague moral arguments or abstractions like the so-called rules-based international order, but rather because America's own core national interests are at stake, because our security is interlinked and our economies are intertwined. So he's he's saying this isn't necessarily just for Ukraine. This is for the United States. Yeah, this, it, this comes on the wake, too, if I could, of Marjorie Taylor Greene's tweet talking about we need a national divorce to separate by red states and blue states, strength of government, a whole other issues and culture wars there. But I found it interesting, the juxtaposition of his unity quote with her, her disunity tweet. Yeah, and you can see in the Republican Party right now, uh, with the launch of Nikki Haley's campaign, the complicated politics of this. So Haley launches her campaign. She sat down on the table with Craig Melvin and um, got asked a question about um, – do you think we should continue to, to be in this? And, you know, she said, I think we should give him what he needs to win, not money, but equipment. And the idea that we would have, so see, you have a Republican candidate for president who has a, won a foot in both camps. The, you know, the, the people in the party that want to get out of this and then the people who want to win it, you can't please them both, I don't think. Right. You can try to persuade, but 
you know, this this equipment we're sending them is not free. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. a really strange now, distinction. Actually, yeah, I, I, I don't I don't know if she meant this by this, but this I kind of understand it to this degree. I don't like giving people on the street money, but I don't mind giving them a sandwich. And so, with Ukraine's history of of uh, corruption, and with the, the history of the United States of a lot of money and, and pallets of cash that have just gone into the ether, we don't know whatever happened to it. If you can prescribe the way that you're going to be, you know, funding something. In other words, if you can say we will pay for X and say here is the support we can do, versus here is this pallet of, of, of cash, I can understand some of the control factor f- f- factor there. But that argument isn't, I think, being all in and standing with Ukraine. And I mean, we, we, we said a, part of the reason that the Biden administration has said they're not going to send some of their weapon systems is that they're just too, too complicated. It would take them mm-hmm. literally months to train people how to use them. That's my other kind of uh, oh, misgivings about, and I agree with Leader McConnell with what he said about it's, you know, why we didn't do more sooner. And mm-hmm. you echoed that earlier, Kevin. My concern about all of this is this war of attrition. And Putin is w- much more willing and, and he has much more control, at least at this point of his own country. In terms of popular will or what he can, how have him bend to his will. In other words, to make this last and be as painful as it needs to be over the course of several years, Russia can outlast Ukraine in that regard. And the question is: is what is the will of Ukraine? What is the will of these other countries like Poland that, as all of you have pointed out, have done a heroic job of accepting the refugees? But beyond that, as far as Ukraine's long-term future, there's also several uh, issues reporting this past week. Of the number, you know, more than a million people who have left Ukraine who might never go back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, people who are in this country. So I just wonder about, in other words, back to McConnell's point and all of your point, is that this needs to be far more decisive. It's one thing to go and say, we're with you, we're with you for the long haul. The question is, can we afford the long haul? Can they afford the long haul? Or do we, there's the, there need to be something far more decisive sooner to be able to tip the balances here? Well, I think there's two questions. If you think we shouldn't be in it, you must believe one of two things. Either Ukraine can't win, meaning no matter how Mm -hmm. much money and equipment we Mm -hmm. give them in a war of attrition, eventually you run out of people and will. Or you think that it's okay if they lose, meaning it's it's fine if Russia Mm -hmm. rolls over Ukraine. So if you think we shouldn't be in it, you must believe, I think, one of those two things, either... It's unwinnable or it doesn't matter. And I I can see why people would come to the conclusion that it might not be winnable given the size of one country versus the other and the resources of one. I, I get that. I mean, it's amazing Ukraine has lasted this long. What I, what I don't get is the idea that um, somehow letting Russia roll over Europe is, is fine. Or, you know, it, this doesn't seem like smart geopolitics mm-hmm. to me. Right. It never has. And so I, I just think people are are attacking this public debate without thinking critically about what they're arguing for. Do you really want Russia running wild through um, Europe uh, without any pushback from the international order? Yeah, this is the, the fault in the sort of isolationist uh, line of thinking here is that we're we're just not isolated, right? Like there right. There, there is no you can't world, choose to be not, isolated. Yeah, yeah, you can't pick up the United States and go to another planet and never have to deal with Russia again, right? I mean, forget the the like economic stuff we've seen with like gas and oil prices. Like, forget the, the those sort of things. If Russia is emboldened here, 
they can do other like the, the United States doesn't have a bubble around it, mm-hmm. right? Like that's the the sort of problem with the isolationist vein is that eventually something can come to your doorstep. And so to to Leader McConnell's point, it's much cheaper, it's much more effective. This is the best way we can do it now. Spend less money, be more effective now, and sort of you know tamper this down and not have to deal with it in the future when it may be worse. Well, he made the same arguments about Afghanistan. You know, he he opposed pulling out of Afghanistan on the grounds that a it was a minuscule part of our budget, b yeah. our soldiers are not in harm's way, mm-hmm. and c you know there had been a terrorist attack in quite some time. I mean, obviously the minimal investment and footprint we had was working. Like we had basically mm-hmm. got it to the point where it was. It was working for the security of the United States, and and to pull out of it was to give in to sort of a, a wrongheaded argument. I think he's kind of making the same point here, which is we don't actually have to – no one's dying here. No Americans are dying, and it's a, it's a small price to pay to defeat our mortal enemy, the Russians. And while I think the isolationists and Marjorie Taylor Greene to get a lot of headlines – I, I don't think they're the majority, and I don't think they're winning. Uh, we, were, we were talking before the show. I can't remember the last time that the president of the United States, the Democratic leader, majority leader of the Senate, and the minority leader of the Senate, plus like 30 other senators, are all out of the country right now. They're on, you know, they're they're in Ukraine, they're in Poland, they all went to this Munich security conference, then McConnell took um, a bunch of freshman senators to the Middle East, Schumer took some Democrats to India, and then they're going to Israel. I, I think there is a strong push among leaders of this country to say the United States is going to remain engaged in this in, in, in the world because it benefits the United States. But it is true, as a public opinion matter, um, isolationism is more popular today than it has been in a long time. And it's sort of bumper sticker foreign policy, yeah. you know, to say, well, why would we— do this there when we should be building a bridge here and and mm-hmm. as though the United States isn't capable of doing both i mean which we right. heard this past week with the east palestine uh, ohio situation yeah. why why isn't biden there now certainly the administration is not without fault there we'll get that in a minute but yeah. at the same time to your point we can do more than one thing i do think geopolitically though and this has to do with maybe just what your each of our predictions or what the military experts would say what china is going to do is a factor here yeah. You know, how does this affect what several, you know, leaders, military leaders have already identified as being our, our largest foe and the biggest threat to the United States and perhaps the next war would be China. And so you can see, look, look at it two ways. One is if we get into this proxy war and China aligns itself with Russia, it's a new axis powers against NATO and the U.S., and that's at World War Three, Or the other, you know, potential outgrowth of this is if we cave – and we and, and Ukraine collapses, does China then feel emboldened about Taiwan and, right. and, and those kind of directions? Yeah. So I'm saying is that well, we, well, we if, can't if, help but have to be a factor. If, if our resolve ultimately weakens to the point where we just abandon this project, it basically shows the Chinese that, yeah, look, if we if we move, they might put up a fight for a while. But the, the Americans just don't have the stomach right. to see through their role as a superpower in the world. I mean, that that's the. I mean, that's ultimately... And they can't even shoot down a weather balloon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we we can shoot it down after it's already gone over the... Right, right, once you do uh, all your homework. But but I think think there is one offshoot of this thing with the Chinese that does worry me, and that is if you've seen the lists of the military equipment that we are sending and read any of the articles about the depletion of our own, you know, ammunition stores and equipment stores, that is concerning to me. I mean, Mm -hmm. this stuff, you you can't make it overnight. I mean, you have to, to, to make it, and so... I am a little worried about that, truthfully. Like, I, I, look, I'm all for, um, you know, defeating the Russians, but at the same time, you wouldn't want to give anybody out there the idea that we're 
essentially running low on and on bullets. <laughs> well, and, it should be a both and thing. I mean, and and we, so I'm, I hope that the that the Biden administration is 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 ramping up production as, as fast as they can. Yeah. Joe, you mentioned the the train derailment. There's a great irony in the like conservatives being like, no, stop caring about our national events. Care about this climate emergency. It's like we <laughs> couldn't right. ever imagine that being the case 10 years ago. We like they would have been like, no, the, those things aren't melting. Like we need to care about America's national defense. It's, it's a real great irony in these people uh, taking that position seemingly you know, for who knows what reason. But. I, I mean, there there was an article in CNN the other day. The headline was, Ukraine is burning through ammunition faster than the United States and NATO can produce it. And the article goes on to say the Pentagon has a plan to, to replace it. But when I mean, you think about that, you've got all of NATO sending mm-hmm. artillery over there. And they're they're shooting it faster than we can get it to them, and and what, I don't know. It's, one, at some point, the lines on the graph get pretty low. I saw a Wall Street Journal report the other day that, um, and this is a creative way to use seized weapons. But the U.S. was trying to figure out a way to legally, because right now there are some restrictions on this, to legally take the weapons that were seized from Iranian-backed fighters in Yemen and reappropriate those to, and send the ammunition and the weapons for the, the fighters in Ukraine. It makes sense as far as that, mm-hmm. but there are some legal restrictions to – is this Iran-Contra? I was going to say, it sounds like they tried this in the 80s. Yeah, and, uh, so, I, was, I was there for that. That's a whole other story. I've got a suggestion. Here, here in Louisville, we've had some controversy around weapons used in murders or assaults here in Louisville being resold – by the state police, so maybe the state police can sell them to, <laughs> to Ukraine, Ukraine. And so they can still sell them, but they won't get on back on the streets of Kentucky. Briefly on East Palestine and what's going on there, and and really this this has been a you know a no good, very bad week uh, or two for Pete Buttigieg or a year or a year. Yeah, I mean or this two. is yeah really. I mean the, the is the, is the luster uh, off that star there. You know it's it's interesting. Um, every single mode of transportation in this country. Has gone haywire on <laughs> right, his watch. Right. Trains, ports, ports, uh, planes, uh, balloons, balloons. balloons. Yeah. <laughs> like, balloons. <multiple> times, balloons. <laughs> I mean, how is there a you know is there a way to get around that hasn't gone haywire since he became Secretary of Transportation? I mean, I it it and remember the chief argument for putting him in this office was that he really he really enjoyed a train ride or whatever <laughs> yeah. you know. Once. He liked the choo choos. I mean. Th- he, 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 this man had no experience. So, so does my three-year-old, by the way. He had no experience running a massive agency. He had never managed more than a handful of people as a mayor of a small town. Um, and essentially, he just thought it was cool, you know, to ride around on stuff. I mean, that that was basically yeah. the argument for his <laughs> for his being put into this office, and it has been an utter friggin' disaster. He's more of a mascot than he is a cabinet secretary. Yeah, and then and then and and by the way. They've only been in for a couple of years, and in a huge chunk of the time, he was on whatever paternity leave. And then, when they were trying to uh, implement the bipartisan infrastructure law, they bought in, brought in Mitch Landrew to actually do it. He didn't even get to do that. It it, it really has been a strange journey. For I would argue that Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas has had the roughest ride and has been the biggest failure. Yeah. Because the border is just right. a complete and epic disaster, and he is personally a disaster. Uh, a management failure, but Buttigieg is a close second. Right. He, if you think about the whole cabinet, he, this dude's a close second, and maybe catching up. We'll see. 
If they if they impeach my orcas, <laughs> Buttigieg goes to the top spot of disasters. It has been an interesting kind of uh, nonpartisan, bipartisan reaction here to what's been going on with that that train crash, and, and for who's getting blamed, and also who's getting credited. You know, in, in the in the meantime. So uh, let me go to speaking of blame and credit. Let's go to I was watching uh, Face the Nation over the weekend. And first of all, Margaret Brennan did it. I wasn't. I wasn't in DC. Did they ever do an extended face the nation in DC? All I know is there was a extremely long interview with Bernie Sanders, like twenty five minutes. And I, I don't know if that was on across the country or not. They knew you were watching. <laughs> exactly. It was that our Russia TV. <laughs> so, <laughs> which, speaking of which, Bernie Sanders making a case for socialism uh, on the uh, on the broadcast. There, a couple different things I wanted to point out, though. And the first thing, um, he was being asked about uh, President Biden, and he was. And the fir- the first clip you'll hear here is him talking about basically the American Rescue Plan mm-hmm. uh, being passed with zero Republican votes, and what that also says about uh, about Biden. We got zero Republican support and two Democrats uh, decided not to support it. So in terms of how you view the president, do you think he is progressive? I think he is a much more progressive president than he was a United States senator. And I think as a result of the campaign and the task forces we did together, you recall we had task forces during his campaign and my campaign. I think we came up with an agenda that was progressive. Obviously, we were not able to get everything we wanted uh, to get done. But Bernie Sanders basically taking a victory lap right yeah. now for the Joe Biden socialist presidency. It's amazing that Biden sort of positioned himself as a moderate during mm-hmm. the campaign. And now you have – and you know, a lot of – McConnell has pointed this yeah. out, that, that essentially uh, Sanders lost the campaign, but he won the war right. uh, it, for ideas within the Democratic Party. And, and it's hard for me to imagine Biden – being more progressive, uh, I mean, to the point where they've literally just decided to openly break the law yeah. to do things they yeah. can't get the U.S. Congress to do, which I, I mean, it, it's it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, the the rent moratorium stuff, like, that's that's student crazy. Loans. Rent controls and price controls I mean, student and loans. all this. Yeah, the student, I mean, the bailouts and all that sort of stuff. It is, I mean... It, almost like you couldn't even imagine Obama having these positions, oh, right. you know, twelve years right. ago or whatever, right? It's that's how far left they've gone. And Bernie Sanders is obviously the most vocal, yeah, democratic socialist. I'm putting that in whatever the heck that I don't know that we've ever figured out what that means, but I mean it's clear he's the most vocal, and so he's you know pulling the chain that way. He's obviously happy with it, but it's interesting on you know on the younger end of the socialist spectrum, AOC, just before the State of the Union, got interviewed on CNN by Dana Bash, and essentially offered the the least you know amount of support she could to Joe Biden, <laughs> yeah. or most tepid or most lukewarm by saying, "Well, if he's the nominee, I'll support him." So while Sanders is out there saying, "You know, this is this is looking pretty good to me based on what I ran on." Uh, you don't you don't get that same feeling from the younger generation of socialists, which in my mind tells you just how radical they are. That even if Bernie Sanders is happy with something, I'm not. And that I mean, it, yes, I think we all acknowledge that AOC, the squad, that gener- they're radical. Yeah, they don't. They're not happy. They're not satisfied with how socialist Joe Biden has been. They, <laughs> even this is not good enough for them. Yeah, so Joe Biden's administration is only Bernie Sanders crazy, not all the way up to AOC crazy. <laughs> On the crazy scale, that's still too crazy for me, but glad, glad to know Ret- he's still got... Return to normalcy, don't forget he, He's that. got some runway to go. Did Trump radicalize them? 
was he basically the the in other words the the uh, the Trump presidency broke a lot of people. I'm just wondering no, if this Bernie, Bernie Sanders been has been in office for, for quite some time. Nah, these, <laughs> these progressives, these socialists, I mean, they've been lurking on the edges of American politics for so long, and finally, they found a Democratic president who really had no personal values. I mean, that's that's the ultimately. They always said with Trump, he was just a vessel for mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. yeah. Biden. I mean, you look at the arc of his career. Look at him on abortion. Mm-hmm. Look at him on. Any any issue, crime, crime, one, yeah. right? Look at him on. I mean, all these issues where he's been all over the place, you know, from one end of the political spectrum to the other on his voting record, from his time in the Senate to then to his time with Obama, now to president. I mean, this guy obviously has no deeply held principles. He he has been a vessel, obviously, for the Sanders agenda, which Sanders is now, as you pointed out, taking a victory lap for. The guy's just a vessel. He's a vessel for whatever he has to be that particular day, and. You know, there are some people in America who think that's what politicians should be. They they essentially should be vessels for mobs. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you're not an actual human. You're just a husk. And we're going to put inside of you whatever the mob mentality is of the day. That That is what has happened to the Biden presidency. That's also, candidly, I think sort of Trump's, you know, mm-hmm. you know he sort of refl- – he wants to reflect whatever he thinks – his mob wants. Right. Mm-hmm. Which and, is and why sometimes that, get, get his, his, of, sometimes his uh, statements can actually mirror that of some of the radical left. Absolutely. Yeah. And, it, and, then, and of course, this also leads to massive contradictions right. in leadership. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so, uh, which is ultra confusing for just the average person who's not following all that close. Like, well, one day you're for this, now you're for this. Um, so it, It's I, being scared of your own base. It's... Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's who's leading who here? Who's yeah. who's the dog and who's the dog walker? Well, Biden's had fifty years for his stances to evolve. Now, eighty years old, Sanders eighty-one years old. Sanders taking great exception on that same face the nation interview with the uh, Nikki Haley during her uh, presidential announcement uh, rollout last week, floating the idea of mental competency tests. For anyone, I guess, what, over the age of 75, 75. So Bernie Sanders reaction to that. Pastor Nikki Haley is running for president, as you know, and she said there should be a mandatory mental competency test for politicians older than 75. You're 81. Do you take offense at that? What did she mean? Do I don't understand what you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where that, I am. <laughs> that's Larry David. I mean, that was like that was Larry David. Yeah, you know, no, I think that's absurd. You know, there's a level. Absurd. Yeah. It, you know, we, we are fighting racism. We're fighting sexism. We're fighting homophobia. I think we should also be fighting ageism. Trust people. Look at people and say, you know, this person's competent. This person's not competent. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of 40 year olds out there who ain't particularly competent. <laughs> <laughs> Older people. Are, you know, you look at the individual. I don't think you make a blanket statement. OK, so when I, it comes I, to the current president or the former president and their age range, it doesn't concern you. Look at what they do, what they believe in. Mm-hmm. What are they fighting for? What does Donald Trump stand for? Do you believe in that? Well, I certainly don't. What does Joe Biden stand for? What is he doing? Has he accomplished? Look at look at him in that way, not on age. He said something that I actually agree with, which is that you can be 40 years old and be incompetent. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I thought this is where Haley actually mixed the attacks on Biden and candidly Trump. The one attack is, well, we th- these guys are just too old. We we mm-hmm. need a new generation. That's bucket 1. The other bucket is kind of the the conservative argument that Biden is 
essentially mentally feeble, that he's incompetent. But she mixed them together by saying mental competency test for people over 75. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a mistake. I think it's fine to argue that we need a new generation of leadership. Several candidates will argue that. I think it's fine to point out that Joe Biden, in fact, may have some mental competency issues. I mean, he's he's proven that from time to time uh, during his campaign and presidency. But when you when you mix it up together, you're ignoring people who are very with it over the age of 75 and people who are very not with it. Yeah. I mean, there's a Democrat congressman from Georgia who's like 68, Hank Johnson, who thinks if we put too many people on Guam, it's going to tip over. Does he need a test? I would argue maybe yes. And so I thought the way she did it, it was like an attempt to insult Biden and I guess Trump. But she missed it. I think that was that was a mistake. I don't know what you guys think, but. Yeah, I think I think you're probably right. I mean, she made news out of it, and that's what she was trying to do. And everyone's sitting here talking about that Joe Biden can't do his job. Right. No, but no, I agree with you. I think the ageism is real. And I think that, as Bernie Sanders said, you know, trust someone or, or judge someone on the, the content or the character, if you will, and not on their necessarily I mean, their, 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 well, are their, their values or what their performance is. Performance, maybe. Yeah, I don't think yeah. this has but anything I, to do I mean, with look, character. It's right. ability to do a job. Performance. It's ability to but, work a 10 hour day. Versus it, when your birth certificate. It's is. perfectly fine to believe that we do need a new generation of leadership, that, that it's not good for a country our size to be run by you know, octogenarians like that. That's a perfectly fine political belief, but that's different than saying anyone who's achieved this age is by default incompetent. Mm. And And, let me ask you as a purely political matter and campaign matter, and and especially in a, let's let's say a primary campaign, it seems to me that the people who are the most likely to show up and vote four out of the last four elections are going to trend older. Yes. So aren't you immediately sort of jeopardizing or cutting off some of your potential support in the first place by by undermining your your, your confidence and their confidence? Sure. I, I think that's true. And then if you look back at the 2020 election, um, older voters who had trended Republican for quite some time sort of drifted towards Biden hmm. in mm-hmm. 2020. And I do think the Republican Party, we talk a lot about the white collar, center right suburbs that drifted towards, but we don't talk enough about the older voters who drifted towards Biden. And to call them incompetent or approaching incompetency, you know, you're 74, you're fine today, but tomorrow you'll <laughs> be taking the test. I no, I don't I don't like it. I think I think it's fine honestly to say Joe Biden is too old to run the country and I also think he has displayed signs of incompetence because there are myriad examples but I'm not sure Joe Biden is incompetent because he's old. I think he's incompetent because he's incompetent. Yeah. And that's true for a lot of politicians, is it not? Yeah, I I wonder cuz like if I'm a voter sitting at home and I hear a politician be like, "I'm not going to take a mental competency test." I'd be like, "Why not? Why don't you want to take one?" Right? And if I'm Nikki Haley or somebody else and want to, you know, maybe get some attention, maybe I do one and I put the results out and show that I got great scores. I'm sure Trump will do that and have some doctor say he got 110 out of he 100 did. or something. He did. He right? did take so one. Well, these, these, they're kind of like I was, uh, comparing it to somebody is like the tax returns thing. It's like one of these like weird ceremonial things that presidential candidates have done. Like maybe it should be one of those kind of ceremonial things where you show that you're maybe physically and mentally competent. Like your point. Like maybe there is something to this that. The Hank Johnsons of the world would, would score low and we'd be like, uh, okay, maybe like let's rethink this. But again, mixing these things and assuming that anybody over an age is 
all of a sudden mentally I, I don't know it's a, it's a strange well, thing well here's trump today i guess on truth social anybody trump says running for the office of president of the united states should agree to take a full and complete mental competency test simultaneously or before with the announcement that he or she is running and likewise but to a somewhat lesser extent agree to a test which would prove you are physically capable of doing the job. Being an outstanding president requires great mental acuity and physical stamina. If you don't have these qualities or traits, it is likely you won't succeed. MAGA! <laughs> Exclamation point. That's the entire... With all apologies uh, to Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, this sounds like the political version of Festivus. Feats of strength. <laughs> yeah. Being well, part of our, yeah. And we, a foot race, maybe? Exactly. This is at the same time, too, as the news of, of John Fetterman uh, being hospitalized with, with his depression. And I think folks felt like they were lied to both by the campaign or the media or whoever. And what? and so I think there's this sense that, like, prove to us that you're okay. Well, let me you, ask you, you guys know? a question. So, what, what is a mental competency test? <laughs> I don't know. What's fine? Yeah, right. we, I think we should do one next week. Now, we'll, find one we'll give one to one Joe, see yeah. if he can keep hosting Here's this my podcast. Question. <laughs> What's more important to you, a mental competency test, whatever that is, or a basic civics test? Right. Right. I mean... I kind of wouldn't mind to see a political candidate yeah. take a like basic yeah. like ninth it, grade civics test. Yeah. What's it going to say about you as a candidate when you lose to someone who failed a mental competency test? When the voters knew about that guy and he, they still voted for him over you. I, I mean, I'd be curious. Yeah. The same thing, especially Scott. After that, uh, the, the judicial hearing two weeks ago. Yeah, when right. that judge, the yeah. judge couldn't. She couldn't identify several amendments to the Constitution. Or articles, 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 which articles? Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> real hard questions. Well, I haven't quite dealt with that in a while. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, wow. That, but I mean, that's sort of the point of of a campaign. A campaign yeah. itself yeah. is a mental competency test. Right. You go out. And over the course of a presidential campaign, the brights, uh, the lights are never brighter mm-hmm. than they are in a presidential campaign. It, it is a mental comp. Mm-hmm. It is a stamina test. And people get an idea of who you are in that campaign. Where you get a lesser idea of people is in like a congressional campaign or something lower where you don't see them all the time. And I, I don't know. I mean, if the idea of testing people for office is interesting. The ultimate test is the campaign and the voters, you know, they're the ones who grade the papers here. Mm-hmm. I just... To me, the civics test, I think we'd be shocked at the number of people who absolutely (laughs) fell on their friggin' face. 76-year-old Donald Trump, by the way, another um, uh, Truth Social post uh, on Tuesday, of course, mostly upset with not getting enough attention. So interesting to watch Fox News, he says, cover the small and unenthusiastic 139-person crowd in Staten Island for DeSantis, but stay as far away as possible from coverage of the thousands of people, many unable to get in, at the Club 47 event in West Palm Beach, Florida. Yeah. Trump cares about media coverage. And uh, this interesting here to see his how his how he is so triggered by the Ron DeSantis I don't want to be called a, a not a phenomenon necessarily, but just sort of the groundswell mm-hmm. that DeSantis is getting right now. Oh, he's quite angry, I imagine, that DeSantis is getting all the attention that he used to get. I mean, that, that's, right. the, that's the thing here. DeSantis is sort of Trump 2016 in some ways. And Trump is trying to rekindle that outsider insurgent magic. And what again, I guess where Trump has really failed to comprehend his position is that he's now the establishment. And there will be insurgents coming after him. Mm-hmm. DeSantis is the leader of the insurgency. 
Haley and other candidates will get in. But it, DeSantis is by far and away the leader of this insurgency. And so where Trump just hasn't, in, what he hasn't internalized is, brother, you are the establishment. You're the president. This is your third presidential campaign. You got all the money. You got all the consultants. Yep. You got all the operatives. You got all the, you've got all the trappings of what it means to be the establishment. And I don't, I just don't think he gets it. And if you can't connect with the people, it's the same as please clap. This is his please clap moment. I agree. How difficult is it, though, to be an ex-president, especially in this world? And, and, and Oh, it must be so hard. <laughs> no, 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 no. Bear with me. And a billionaire, too? Is, yeah. he, is, he is used to, basically, you know, as president and going on Twitter when he was still allowed on there. And I guess he's allowed back on now, but mm-hmm. hasn't done it yet with his own company. But that said, like this whole meatball comment he made about DeSantis, that would have been a much larger headline as president than it is as ex-president and kind of flailing right now. So I'm just saying it's, it's just well, interesting. the bar is higher for him now than it was in 16. Because remember in 16, the entire narrative was, oh, he'll never run. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, he says he's running, but he'll never finish the campaign. Or he'll, he could never possibly win. So constantly the bar was lowered for Trump. Mm-hmm. Now he was the president. He's run twice. This is his third attempt. The bar is really high. And so if your insults are lame or your statements are stupid or you haven't, you know, your crowds are dull or whatever, mm-hmm. like that's, again, part of being the establishment means you have high expectations of making it look good, making it sound good, making it sound crisp. Bear with me here as I make it a rough transition as far as where the bar is in civics. And speaking of Trump, because I don't know if you guys saw the Trump, the, 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 the forewoman of the grand jury looking into the Trump uh, allegations and the Trump campaign and the pressuring of Georgia <laughs> campaign officials. But where is the bar on, on civic literacy for someone who is, who's serving on a grand jury? Because the, the, this Emily Coors, and her name was discovered as a result of, a, I guess, open records request, and yeah. I think she signed her name on a subpoena. So usually grand juror, uh, the grand jury, as well as what they hear, is all very, very secretive. Um, but you know, basically, she she, she was uh, quoted, and I guess was was interviewed and talking mm-hmm. about how she didn't know anything about this. She had never heard about this phone call that Trump made to Raffensperger down in, in Georgia. This is all sort of like a revelation, and she ends up being the person like in charge of the grand jury. Coors, this is the Associated Press reporting. Coors did not vote in 2020, and by the way. In case you've forgotten, turnout was extremely high. <laughs> like literally, everybody voted. So and in Georgia, <laughs> right? Yeah. So she lives. She in got a, a couple sw- tri- tries at it too. Yeah. She <laughs> lives in a swing state. Yeah. Target state. Yeah. Multiple, you know, lots of attention. Coors didn't vote for 2020 and was only vaguely aware of controversies swirling in the wake of the election. She didn't know the specifics of Trump's allegations of widespread election fraud or of his efforts to reverse his loss, which I read as an opaque sort of reference to she didn't know about January 6th, basically. (laughs) When prosecutors played then-President Trump's phone call with Raffensperger on the first day that the grand jurors met to consider evidence, it was the first time Coors had ever heard it. Now, this clip had been played on television (laughs) ad nauseum. Yeah. So you have a grand juror, appointed foreman of the special grand jury, essentially is disconnected from American civic life. I mean, it was it was really hard to avoid this information if you were even paying the remotest amount of attention. And was it not? To be fair, in a jury, you want 
non-partial people or impartial people. But I don't think you want people who have been under a rock or have not seen daylight in a while. You want, like you said, <laughs> civically engaged people who get the process, who get what's going on, who understand it. I mean, even if some this person hated Donald Trump, but like swore to be impartial, I would almost prefer that person. The <laughs> AP article you were quoting, Scott, also she in, in that she she called herself a geek about the justice system. So apparently, I don't even know what that means. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that means that Me she's... Me too. I'm constantly trying not to get arrested. <laughs> no, no. I'm ass- I'm, I mean, I'm inferring that that meant that she was really into looking into the, the court system, I guess, but not politics. I don't know. Maybe she likes crime shows? On Law and Order. Law and Order every night. I mean, the idea of a single person in America being like, hold on. That guy was trying to overturn the election is crazy I mean, how could you have not been aware of it? I know. Even if you were like, I don't... I, I don't know. Maybe you don't they follow it every did. day. There's other like, stuff going on. I something, get it. but like the, I mean, that's in, just in her defense. I will say, and, and to your point, Kevin, perhaps there is something to be said in a case that is so politically charged, where everybody has an opinion. I mean, they found like the one person in America who was a total blank <laughs> canvas and had never heard of any of this before. I mean, it's almost like they, you know, a space alien came down and. <laughs> And said, wait, what now? What are we doing here? Like, I have no knowledge of any of this. And so I just explain it to me like I'm five, you know? Yeah. That's what they had here. I was also surprised. By the way, the, uh, this this piece we're reading is from the AP by Kate Brumback. If you want to read more, is Google Kate uh, Brumback and the AP for this <laughs> Trump grand jury article. But the um, the other thing I found it surprising about this, and I guess I've never served on a grand jury before. I've I wish. been aware. You wish I would? <laughs> sure, you too, but I, I think it'd be great. Um, it's, it's a long commitment. Yeah. I remember it's like 30 or 60 days, yep. and, and it oh, just wow. seems to be very difficult just in terms of how who can get away from work that long. But I was surprised that she said in the same article that, that the grand jurors were allowed to bring in newspaper accounts and be reading about like the news coverage of these of these, of these situations. Well, a grand jury is different than mm-hmm. a trial jury. 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 Yeah. Uh, I don't know what all the rules are in Georgia, but I, I do think... They have different rules. You know, she did say to the reporter, if I choose a political party, it would be the not crazy party. And she said she tends to agree more with Democrats, but then said she doesn't identify with any political party and prefers to listen to all opinions. I mean, we all we all by the way, we all know somebody like this. And and she not I'm 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 independent. I don't agree with any party. And then three minutes later, well, the Democrats aren't crazy. And she (laughs) eagerly volunteered, quote, to be four person. Yeah. So I've never heard or read an interview like this from someone who served on a grand jury. And they they made references to the judge told them what they could and couldn't say. And she very closely followed that. I was shocked that anybody's allowed to speak this candidly. She was talking about what was in the room. She talked about the mannerisms of a lot of the witnesses who were called. And she was keeping a sketchbook, apparently, that were pretty... And she was complimented on her drawings for those that she was able... She was allowed to keep. Yeah. So she was, like, drawing caricatures. She's like a a courtroom artist. I mean, this is She's also the judge. Did you know that? (laughs) Let me me say in this lady's defense, who I don't know, and all I know about her is what I've read in this article. I don't... I don't think this was the most... I think this was intended to be flattering. I don't necessarily think it came out that way. On the other hand, God bless the people who were willing to show up and serve. I mean, how many people do we know trying to constantly get out of stuff right. like this? Yeah. Amen. And and um, and it, it is our responsibility as citizens, if we're going to have a justice system that's for everybody, it's our responsibility as citizens to participate in it so that we're being judged by our peers. And so, you know, I, I, God bless that. I, I 
what what I would what, also what say I think it's is your great, responsibility to vote. But I, I agree. But but I would just also say this: in addition to having a responsibility for showing up, we have some basic responsibility to, in my opinion, as citizens, have some basic civics knowledge and keep up with what's going on mm-hmm. in the world around us. I know everybody doesn't. To me. That is a that is something citizens should strive to do. I know it, you can't require people to do that, but that's to me is it makes you a good citizen to keep up with things. I'm going to ask you about the the implications here. Well, the, the legal implications are pretty clear, I guess. But according to an NBC News report on Tuesday night, also talking to Emily Corr as the foreperson of this grand jury, that the grand jury recommended indictments against more than a dozen people. A list she said might include Donald Trump. She said, there are certainly names that you will recognize. There are also names you might not recognize, is what she said in this. And then there are names that she doesn't recognize. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. I've never Clearly. heard of any of these people. So what, what happens politically if Trump is indicted? You know, I, I don't know, because he's got the Georgia stuff that's laying out there. He's got these New York prosecutors still looking into him for right. a couple of different, including all the way back to Stormy Daniels. And then, of course, you've got the special counsel doing the January 6th stuff in the background here with, you know, they've subpoenaed Pence, they've Mm -hmm. subpoenaed Mark Meadows. So he's sort of got three different centers of legal problems. You know, one of the things I've wondered is, are they talking to each other and who's going to go first? And are they going to try to go at the same time? Are any of them going to go? Like, you know, a few weeks ago, it seemed like there for a moment, based on some reporting, that the Stormy Daniels New York thing was imminent, like that they were going to indict him over that. I'm not even sure for what. And I thought, you know, it would be, in my opinion, galactically stupid for this to be the the first indictment of Donald Trump, having something to do with Stormy A, no one cares. Mm-hmm. B, old news. Mm-hmm. C, aren't there bigger fish to fry? <laughs> I mean, than, than Stormy Daniels. And so I, short answer, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what would happen if he gets indicted in Georgia. How you, how where do you go get this guy? Are you going to send the Georgia state troopers to Florida? I mean, what happens? Like, I have no idea what happens in that case. Well, I guess in that case, there, if there's an extradition agreement, does Ron DeSantis have to approve that? <laughs> He's never Meatball signed something Ron. faster. <laughs> Meatball Ron has sent the stormtroopers <laughs> he, to get me. He wouldn't call him that. He wouldn't call him. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You'd have Ron DeSantis calling Brian Kemp and saying, well, what should we do? <laughs> it's it's very uh, it's Well, crazy. speaking of Republicans in legal trouble, someone that uh, several of us know, uh, a, 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 a Kentuckian who's moved here years ago and was also from Texas and a few other places, Jesse Benton, uh, sentenced to 18 months in prison last week. Uh, for his involvement in transferring illegal campaign contributions from a Russian national mm. to former President Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. Now, you might recall, you might think, wait a second, I thought Jesse Benton was was pardoned by Trump for some sort of a illegal campaign s- scheme. And in fact, he was, but that was for a different one. So that was, and so Trump pardoned him, I guess, you know, obviously during his presidency. This was for a, a, a later contribution there. And the way I understand it is that there was like a photo op. This Russian national wanted to get a picture, and he was. I, I'm, my memory here tells me it was a hundred thousand dollars that Jesse Benton kept some of that money and then donated a portion of it to the Trump campaign under Jesse Benton's name versus the Russian national, who of course would not be allowed to contribute to said campaign. And uh, but really, Scott, a very really interesting latest chapter in someone who's had a very 
circuitous route through uh, national and, and, and Kentucky politics. Yeah, he was Mitch McConnell's uh, initial campaign manager in the 2014 election. He'd obviously run the Rand Paul and Ron Paul stuff at various points and uh, lives in Louisville, as far as I know, mm-hmm. uh, still does. And, um, um, you know, it, it, it was a strange uh, journey for him and uh, having known him. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of weird to read news stories like this about people you know I'm sure there were Democrats out there who had the same feeling when Jerry Lundergan got sentenced to prison. Right. Like, man, I know that guy. And uh, and the other guy from, uh, oh, who's the one who, oh, shoot, now I shouldn't have remembered his name. The other, I. I Great job. I, I'm going to look it up. <laughs> Connected to the, I, the I would shears. Just, I would just like to point out that you may need a mental competency. You can't even remember. <laughs> you're getting past your prime over there. I'm just saying. <laughs> <Wait>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. Looking a little. I'm a little we chagrined. Should give, we I'm, should give. There's this. I don't mean this in a. You've probably never taken like a concussion test before, right? That those didn't. What do you? Oh, was that you, party chair? I know what, what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. What's his name? Yeah, Tim Longmire. Longmire. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Look at me. I'm in my prime. There you go. <laughs> I can remember the things you forgot. But we, we should give you one of those concussion tests to see what your baseline is for. <laughs> Because it's like memory and all those things. It'll be, it, it'll be funny. Yeah. He's got glassy eyed and wait, wait, just wait. staring off into space. Jared just said, that'd be funny. It would be, you, it'd be good give content. You, what are you alleging? Oh, I'm not <laughs> saying anyone Just in case Jared had a concussion test, I think that you're but incompetent. That to, no, that to me is like saying? one of those mental competency tests. Because like memory. I don't think this is going Quick very reactions. Well. I, I, I want to talk about person, woman, man, man camera, <laughs> TV. That's, that was the Donald Trump. Yes, Remember yeah, that now? Yes, yeah. It was during the campaign yeah. in 2020. He did take a mental competency, now that I think about it. We're less than 100 days away from the <laughs> primary campaign in Kentucky, Scott. Handicap this. What's what's your 90-second handicapping of where we are right now for the gubernatorial primary? Well, let's see. I still think Daniel Cameron is the front runner for the Republicans. Um, Kelly Craft, I do think, made some headway with her TV campaign. She was the only one on the air. And I think... She this, is not on the air now, though, right? She is not. I think it's been over two weeks since mm-hmm. her campaign went dark. I would expect them to go back on the air at some point, but I'm... I was a little surprised, candidly, when they came down. It's not just... It's not normal for a campaign to go on the air and then to go dark and then to, especially when you know they have the resources to stay on. And so um, I thought it was a little weird because I, I think Daniel is pretty far ahead because he has the highest name identification, the highest positive ratings. And so in order to catch up with somebody like that, you really need the advantage of time. And that's what Kelly had, time and resources. So she was on the air advertising her name long before Daniel or any other candidate can do it. So every day that you're not on is essentially a gift to, to the front runner because it's a day you've lost and trying to reel him in just a little mm-hmm. bit. So what we haven't reached is the stage of the campaign where attacks are being levied. And I would suspect we are getting close to uh, to that time when when if you think you are a legitimate contender, you may have to start thinking about making a contrast between yourself. Maybe they won't. But my view is Daniel is pretty – I think the public polling that's come out is probably pretty accurate. I do think Kelly made some headway, but certainly Daniel remains far out in front. Um, and, you know, what do we have coming up? We've got a few more Lincoln Day dinners, people out doing the, the circuit. We've got a few debates. Mm-hmm. Um, which One of which she's not participating in. Yeah, which, I, you know, I'm not sure the debates are going to – 
matter all that much. Yeah. So, um, I mean, unless somebody says something dumb and it makes its way into advertising. So right now, I, I guess I would still regard Cameron as the front runner with Kelly having moved up and Quarles, um, who I would put in the top tier, has money, but he hasn't spent any yet. And so we haven't seen any advertising from him yet to see how he's going to attack this thing. But I'd say mid-March, it starts to get down to the time when people, I think, are going to have to start drawing lines, my view. You know, voter turnout wasn't all that great in the midterms, uh, you know, in oh, Kentucky. very low So in this. what do you think, what kind of energy do you portend for, for this, and who does that favor? I mean, I, I think there'll be no more than 300,000 votes if historical trends are accurate. I think it'd be very low turnout. And it's challenging for a campaign. You think about a state with all these voters and all these geography and media markets, and you think about trying to find the, the 250 or 300,000 people that are going to vote that are spread out all over the place. I mean, a huge chunk of them live in Louisville and Lexington. And then you, you cascade down dramatically from there, county by county. Um, in terms of energy, I will say this. Um, I feel like Daniel Cameron has gotten some national attention. You know, that's his forte. He was on Fox News last night, actually, on uh, Ingram show. He continues to to, to turn that wheel. Kraft, uh, I mean, look, I only know what I see. And I open my social media feeds, and I see Kelly doing events all over the state, mm-hmm. which, and I think they look pretty good. And the theme of it and sort of the, 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 um, the, con- the continuity of it all, I think, feels pretty smart. And you got Ryan out there driving around. So I, I feel like they're all creating energy within their own personality type. And uh, uh, But again, when, when you've got somebody who's so far ahead, like I think Daniel probably is, nothing will really change until somebody gives all the people who think they like the front runner today uh, a reason to not vote for him or her. In any, I mean, that's just the dynamics of any given race. and uh, Or... You know, you're kind of stuck persuading, you know, 90% of all the undecideds to come your way, which is a very difficult thing to do. Right. I, I think you're exactly right. It's been a kind of a sleepy campaign thus far, so I think we're all still waiting for— I do think Republicans are waiting for these candidates to tell them, A, uh, how we're going to beat Andy Bashir, and B, why they're the best person to do it. I think all of them are still a little bit trapped in the introductory phase of explaining who I am, mm-hmm. where I came from— what are my plans? What are my motivations? At some juncture, when you're talking to partisan audiences, I want to know, can you beat these people and how are you going to do it? And so, and so some, of the, some of that introductory bi- biographical stuff really is, is more for general election audiences. In a, in a Republican primary with low turnout, that means the most politically interested people are voting. So they're a higher information voter. And they're more partisan. No, no, Emily Coors. <laughs> right. I heard about this thing. We have something called a governor. Who knew? <laughs> so anyway, I just think at some point you've got to make a transition, and you've got to you've got to explain to people, I'm up to this, and here's how I plan to do it, and here's why I need you with me. We haven't gotten that yet. We will. I'm confident that these candidates will do that, but we're still a little early for that at, at some juncture. I guess. I mean, we just haven't seen it yet. We're less than 100 days till the primary. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's that was more than ninety seconds. So I, I don't I don't think a ton has changed um, in the race so far, other than I think Kraft has probably overtaken Quarles and is in second place. I think Cameron is 
still far out uh, ahead of the pack. We're going to go to our political expert, Augustus Gloop, and ask him his opinion on this now. <laughs> he just says chocolate. <laughs> Talking about Seen Red Herd now, and uh, one of our favorite uh, authors, at least of much children's literature. I know, Scott, you read Roald Dahl to your, your yeah. children. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda, James and Giant Peach, among others. And uh, some interesting news the past couple of weeks here that apparently the, the publisher, Jared, of of Roald Dahl's books has decided to do a little bit of revisionist uh, writing here. Yeah, we've had this story. We had it with Dr. Seuss a couple of years ago. My initial reaction to this was, what the hell did Roald Dahl say that was so bad? I was like, <laughs> I, I was trying to think back to these books. I'm like, he, you know, this isn't uh, Huckleberry Finn or anything where it would have some, you know, uh, uh, allusions to slurs or anything like that. Well, they're upset that he uh, referred to the, you know, large boy as being too large words like fat are now unacceptable and uh i just like to go on the record and say i i actually agree with these reviews <laughs> <laughs> i think if we could just banish uh, banish uh, any discussion of <laughs> well, the, 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 somebody the, tell the president the hey, great, fat. <laughs> hey fat hey fat That's right. the, the real strange thing here is, is always what they choose to like supplement it with yeah. and so if you wanted to like strike fat and say like uh, body disadvantage, body weight disadvantage. It's one of these like weird progressive words that yeah. they make up all the time. But they, the word they're substituting it for is enormous. I don't know. Personally, that feels worse. I think, like, I think I think fat to some people is a slur, and it's become associated with that. I thought it was interesting. There was a book that Dahl wrote in 1983 called The Witches. He wrote that witches are bald beneath their wigs. So in this situation, they didn't change the words. They actually added an entire line that says. There are plenty of reasons, but there are plenty of other reasons why women w- might wear wigs, and there is certainly nothing wrong with that. They added the entire line. <laughs> he certainly. didn't say women, he said certainly. witches. These are like yeah. fictional characters. Uh, it's just bizarre. Did Will Smith re- rewrite that line? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned the Seuss, but you know they did this to Beyonce a few months ago. Yeah. I mean, the mob yeah. and, made her oh, and, Lizzo. and Lizzo. And, and girl I mean, Lizzo. I mean, I mean, you've got so you have these sort of language mobs. Yeah. That are running around, so they'll if they'll edit Beyonce, you better believe they'll edit Roald Dahl or really anything else. But it's the same people who want to get rid of the statues. Yeah. It's the mm-hmm. same people who are constantly. I'm offended. Yes, it, they, they are professional victims. They're they're professional, you know, uh, offended people. And I don't know. I I think most people react to this the way we are, which is this is insane. But until somebody stands up to him and says no. Who's going to stop the mob? So Sean is out right now. He's not here because he's buying first editions of all these books. So we can exactly. uh, <laughs> you know, the way they used to be. I am reminded about this. I'm going on a lot of college tours right now with my younger son. My, I have a freshman and a college son, and I have a junior in high school. And you know, you, you read. I'm just so much more aware of this now, I guess, because of the fact that we're on these college campuses, and this whole concept of you know safe spaces. In other words, spaces that you're not going to hear things that you're offended by. I'm like, college is a place you should go to be offended. College is a place you should go to be, well, to be to be challenged, to think through things, to hear things that might be contrary to what you what you yourself believe. Everything you're saying to me right now sounds like violence. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you Speech are committing violence. violence against me. Speaking of violence up. against all of us, <laughs> seen Red Herd, we had Roald Dahl. Kevin, what do you have for seen Red Herd? Do you guys want to take a quiz? 
Oh, oh is it the return of it's, Kevin's quiz? When you guys were uh, talking about Kareem Jean Pierre last you year, you got motivated. Week, I, I had to to bring it out. So uh, <laughs> it's time for Quip, Kev, the return of Kevin's quiz. <laughs> Did we ever build a theme for this? No, that's we that's the reason about we stopped. Oh, yeah. It's Kevin's quiz. <laughs> Kevin's quiz. So today we're we're recording this Tuesday night, Mardi Gras, and so this is a full Mardi Gras themed higher or lower. Otherwise known as Enormous Tuesday. <laughs> very good. Very, very good. That's good. That's uh, nice. So we are going to do, there are five questions, five rounds, and it's higher or lower. We're going to start with one of you on each round. Okay. All the answers to these questions is a number. You give a number. I tell you if it's higher or lower, and the next person goes around. And okay. then whoever gets all the- I'm sorry. You're, what now? <laughs> I'm very confused. So I'm going to ask Joe a question. I literally cannot be present I'm now. Thinking. Say this again. <laughs> I'm going to Joe a question. The what answer is, is a number. He oh. Will give me a number. It's like the price is right. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, it's okay. the price is right. I, I thought he'd just say that. I was concussed. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all Mardi Gras themed. Man, woman, <laughs> person, four. Good. So after Joe gets it wrong, then Jared will okay. get a shot. And after Jared, then Scott. Okay. And we'll keep right. going around. Number one. Holy. Man. What was the first year? For a Mardi Gras parade in New Orleans, I will say it was 1792. Higher, so later. Oh, I was I would have gone lower than that. 1818. Wait a minute, you're telling us if it's higher or lower? Yes. Oh, okay. 1818. Higher. I was going to say 1890. Lower. Okay, so what's the answer? 1837. Uh-huh. All right, all right. Well, but we- New Orleans wasn't the first city to celebrate. Mardi Gras. It was Mobile, Alabama. has the oldest Mardi Gras and celebration. And they stole it. And they stole it. They appropriated it huh. from Mobile. It's terrible. This should be canceled. Mm. Number two. How? D- uh, okay. That, that, yeah. Jared, Strange. you're first. Okay. Go ahead. How many pounds of beads are thrown oh. thrown at rel- revelers? No, wait a minute. How would anybody know that? Because How they could have you to possibly measure that? They have to that? pick them up out of the sewers after. Pounds of beads. Well, people wear them home. And this one, this one this is, is a, a round, round answer. <laughs> How does the, one get a, the, a beads thrown at I them? I will say... <laughs> First of all, you're not having any thrown at you. <laughs> I can assure you. Oh, Tomatoes will be thrown at gonna you. It's going to be a lot. 100,000 pounds? Higher. Oh, 5 million pounds. Higher. 50 oh. million pounds. Lower. 25 million. Okay. That's it. Hey! Scott gets a point. How could you possibly measure it? Just ask me. <laughs> I'll tell you. And the first beads were, can be traced back to the 1880s when a man dressed as Santa Claus started throwing beads at probably women. Oh, ho, ho. <laughs> God. Uh, number three. Scott? You're, you're, Scott. No, you're <laughs> off the show. Beer. <laughs> Yes. So this is, this is the, the price of one of the quintessential Mardi Gras drinks, the hand grenade. How much does a hand grenade cost? To make or to buy? To buy. Twelve dollars. On the street. Lower. Eight fifty. Higher. Ten fifty. Higher. Eleven dollars. Eleven dollars. I was close. And they're up. Inflation. They've gone up a full ten percent. All right. How many more of these do we have? Two more. I said there's only five. <laughs> Joe, according to news today, yes. How, how many, many how, how many pounds of urine are, are you how many drunk in the street? Are passed out? <laughs> how many cell phones have been stolen at a Mardi Gras parade today? Oh. Today, how many cell today. phones? How many like cell phones? How many, how many pounds of cell phones? How many <laughs> cell phones? Okay. Today, hundred and twenty-five. So close, but lower. Oh man, hundred and twenty. Higher. Oh. oh. Then give it to me. <laughs> Here's, 
122. 122. Okay. You got. You so Scott almost, was gonna get it. That's pretty good. I was gonna say like a thousand. I, I would have been. Yeah, I'd have I thought. I was like a huh. law enforcement expert. That's actually a pretty <laughs> low number. A hundred stolen. Do you want to guess how many arrests there have been? Well, you think about all, well, you think about Seven. all the people. A, you think about the thousands of people on the street. B, you think about the level of intoxication, and C, you think about the number of people who know how to take this advantage of these. This things. isn't lost. This isn't left in a bathroom. This, is, this stolen. is stolen. I know, but you just think about drunk people and how yeah. easy it is to steal from them. Anyway, when you put that many people together, a big crowd, two hundred thousand. I mean, like, I'm not yeah. advocating it. I'm just saying <laughs> he's giving them the roadmap. Yeah. All right, last question. Mardi Mardi Gras ends at midnight tonight as the mayor rides through the street, theoretically. And then we begin, tomorrow's Ash Wednesday begins Lent. How many days till Easter? Mm, I don't know. 20-something? 40. Higher. Higher. What? Joe's face right now is the reason this question's in here. It's not 40 days. It's not 40 days? It's 46 days. Well, because of it's, it's 40 days from Sunday? It's forty. It's forty. Forty six days. Forty non Sundays. Oh, of course, because Sundays. But look are at not, a calendar. That's a good point. Hmm. What, what's point. everyone giving up for Lent, by the way? I think flyover country. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving up competency tests. <laughs> I'll not take one for the next forty six days. I'm giving up concussions. So <laughs> thank you, Kevin. Kevin's yeah. quiz. Kevin's quiz. What, are we giving up quizzes? What are you? <laughs> do, do you all give? Do you all have a? A, a sort of a family sacrifice ritual that you go through? I usually decide as I'm walking up to get my ashes at church tomorrow. Yeah, I'll do that. I, I've i tried to, in recent years, rather than give something up, trying to do something more proactive, something, you know, to be more... I don't know what that is yet either. I'll decide yeah. when Kevin gets his ashes. Do you disclose <laughs> it or do you keep it private? Private. Interesting. I feel like if you disclose it to the podcast, it would make you more accountable. Mm. I've tried that. It didn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right. Any more you? scene? Any more? Are you doing anything? Any, any sacrifices? You know, actually, driving over here tonight to do this pod <laughs> is a I, sacrifice. <laughs> I was I was thinking about the fact that it's Ash Wednesday, and you know, my kids know about it, and they sometimes in the past have talked about giving this. So I actually think we probably have a family meeting later, and and we'll discuss something that each of them can give up, and they've done it in the past. Yeah. So, um. And uh, and I think I've actually had a pretty positive experience with it. Um. So we'll probably do something individually. We'll go around and do something as a family, but we'll we'll have to report on that later on. Who who else has got a scene right? Or I got one from from a couple of nights ago. You go ahead though. You got one? Yeah, uh, Ross Douthat's piece in the New York Times. Um, I don't know if it ran this weekend. Uh, titled "American Teens Are Re- Really Miserable." Why? Uh, interesting piece on. Uh, I believe it was some CDC data, maybe in the last month or so about percentage of young girls who are either depressed or suicidal and the number has just skyrocketed um of course the you know the the right sort of points to like families breaking down and the covid lockdowns and the left points to like climate change and (laughs) capitalism and all these things and ross sort of makes this point that it's kind of like somewhere in the middle with some of those but also social media and uh the changing landscape of of you know childhood and, and stuff like that uh really good piece but you know, he makes this point that as the the sort of older generation, we always look down and we're like, "What are those kids doing?" It's a pretty serious concern here, both with young men and young women experiencing depression and suicidal thoughts. So it, it's an interesting piece, a little sad, but interesting piece. So, did you all see, by the way, the Washington Post reporter T 
Taylor Lorenz yes. commenting oh, on this. She, well, lest we forget, I said that she was the worst person of last year <laughs> on our wrap-up podcast. <laughs> she had a... Did you see this? I didn't She know. went on a Twitter rant about this very topic. People are like, why are kids so depressed? It must be their phones. But never mention the fact that we're living in late-stage capitalist hellscape during an ongoing deadly pandemic with record (laughs) wealth inequality, zero social safety net, and job security as climate change cooks the world. (laughs) Not to be a doomer, but you have to be delusional to look at life in our country right now and have any hope of optimism. All have any amount of hope or optimism. All the people yelling that capitalism is actually going great and everyone in the U.S. should be cheerful and happy. If you're so content with your life, then why are you on here getting all worked up? (laughs) Now, this is a a supposed journalist for the Washington Post who comes from a rich family who gets paid to dox anonymous Twitter accounts. I think think capitalism's going okay for her. (laughs) I mean, I'm just... Saying, I like, see several opportunities for the puffin publishers of Royal Dow to take a couple of, of edits there to her. I mean, she oh just, in any way, the internet has just been roasting. What is late Taylor. stage capitalism hellscape? Like, well, what? I've I never mean, frankly, it's a good opening line. It's we what open, Bernie Sanders says. If I mean, we open yeah. a coffee shop, we'll call it that late stage capitalism, capitalism hellscape, hellscape coffee. Yeah. <laughs> That's number one. That's great. I don't, I just I don't this attitude like I I don't understand I mean not but, to I mean to tell that to the people first in, of all first Keith, of all quality like, uh, <laughs> quality of life for humanity mm-hmm. right yeah. has never been higher and That's it right. is it is advanced so dramatically in the last hundred years never been better never, never been better you know we live longer we're healthier yes there are bumps in the road yes there are things we don't like but just overall quality of life for most humans, is so much better right now, especially if you live in America. It's not all that bad. Well, right? we are, but our children, unfortunately, are being lectured to and being told about how awful things are and about how the world's about ready to implode, and climate change alarmists are chief among them, and it's, it's very sad. It, and there's it is, no it is. cause for hope. Or optimism. None. None. Not single one, Kevin. Not a single How, how do you get out of bed in the morning when you think that? It, it is interesting, though, um, what certain liberals believe about the circumstance. I was watching Bill Maher the other night, and he brought up this poll that came out during COVID. You know, at some point, like 50% of Democrats believe that over half of all COVID infections resulted in hospitalization right. when it was less yeah. than like 0.1% or right. something. But basically, you get trapped in these narrative feedback loops. Do we have Bill? Yeah, this I is a, we should play it actually. Yeah, this is a bonus version of Flyover Country <laughs> with know, Scott Jennings. I know. We're in hour three. <laughs> a lot of radio shows. Paper today, kind of a big story. I think. I wonder how much it's going to get covered in the liberal media because it's about how natural immunity. They did a giant study, sixty-five countries, or maybe something like sixty-five countries. Many, many different studies. They looked at them all. Natural immunity, as good or better than the vaccine. Something I've been saying since the beginning, and I get called an anti-vaxxer. That's not an anti-vaxxer. This is the kind of thing, I, you know, my problem with the media from both sides is not that you, you guys lie. It's that you tell me your side of the story that you want me to know. You don't tell me the whole story. I'd be curious as to how much play this story gets, because I, I, I remember reading that they did a study of... Republicans versus Democrats, the question was, what percentage, this is like a year and a half ago, what percentage of people who get COVID require hospitalization? The answer is less than 1%. 
Almost half of Democrats thought it was over 50%. They listened to your network. Where do they get that kind of information? He's questioning Ari Melber from MSNBC. And so, you know, I think of Bill you know, as a liberal, but he has been, he has become lately a voice of sanity. But you think about, I don't know, it just, you, you people get trapped in these narrative bubbles. And if you listen to one thing and one thing only, you can become so disoriented about the reality you live in that it re- results in Twitter rants like that. All right, I'll finish this up. My scene red heard. I sent you a clip, by the way. Can you pull it? Yes, yeah. We have more clips. <laughs> Bonus. <laughs> well, this is the last thing. I was watching TV the other night. I am a huge fan of professional wrestling. I have been since I was a kid. And one of the biggest storylines in, in professional... One of the biggest storylines in professional wrestling was when WCW Wrestling, owned by Ted Turner, decided to go all in against the WWF by creating the New World Order. They turned Hulk Hogan into a bad guy, and they basically took over World Championship Wrestling for a couple of years. It was the most insane thing, and and it got huge. The reason I'm bringing this up is A&E, the network A&E, has a show on Sunday nights about wrestling. It's basically a documentaries about different things, about either wrestlers or items that happened. And they did the NWO. It was a big deal to me because as a committed Hulk Hogan fan, when he turned heel, oh my God. It was like earth-shattering news. Anyway, the New World Order show that they had on Sunday night was just incredibly well done. And it was kind of taking you back because it was a cultural... I mean, they had Hulk Hogan on Leno beating up Jay Leno one night. I mean, it was a cultural phenomenon. Was this before or after George H.W. Bush's New World Order? <laughs> after. <laughs> but anyway, my scene Red Heard was A&E documentary on wrestling. Came on Sunday night. I think then they did one on the rivalry between Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant from the 80s, which was also enormous. I was a big fan of Harley Race. He was a big wrestler on the on that and Pat O'Connor, circuit. yeah, and and the and the Von Erich brothers, yeah, that's right. That's they were in the, they were in the St. Louis circuit. That's yeah. right. Anyway, I just thought if you haven't seen it on A and E and you like wrestling as much as I did, the New World Order episode of it was pretty awesome. Thanks to WCW <laughs> New World Order for taking us home. Thank you, and thanks for joining us, Scott. <laughs> Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Mm-hmm.